you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2, we're going to be going straight through Exodus, at least the first part, first 19 chapters of that bombs, and we'll uh, skip the second part. <clears throat> I got an email this week, and it was an email from a pastor back in Kentucky, which I've never met, never heard of their church, and he emailed me um, asking if he could preach or buy the redemption series that we preach. My first thought was like, did you ever listen to it? But secondly, it was really weird to even have be asked that question because it seems just strange to me. And as I pondered, like, hey, what do you say to this guy? Because people have asked for graphics and things like that. I send it to him. I don't care. I'll give him all my sermons. It's really <laughs> nothing to write home about. So I, I give him, I, I said, okay, look, I don't really care. I don't have any kind of policy or copyright. I don't really worry about that. If I you reference something, you should probably give credit where credit's due. I said, but here is my biggest concern, and the biggest concern is that when I when I prepare a sermon, um, and when any pastor prepares, prepares a sermon, the first thing they're supposed to make sure they do is that, you know, you can get into the scriptures all you want, but the scriptures never come into your heart first, and really all you're doing is teaching what you think people need to learn that's never really impacted you. And so I told him, I said, I'm more concerned about the guy preaching it, honestly, if you preach it word for word or, or whatever, even close. Have you really even wrestled with the scripture yourself? And as I've honestly gone through Exodus, um, I've just been, the snot has just been beat out of me, honestly, um, which is a good thing because then I just get to come and puke it out on you and you get the same experience I've had all week. But the fact is, this is a very powerful but familiar story and we're very kind of, um, Likely to, if we don't try not to, dismiss a lot of stuff that's difficult. And so I say that because as I, as I preach some of the stuff that it sounds like some guy up here just screaming at you to be better or whatever, know that I've just been beat up myself and I'm just sharing my own experience with you. So you're welcome. Um, so we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2 and it's a passage that again is very familiar, but hopefully it will be maybe new or we look at it a little bit differently today. As I was uh, thinking about preparing, I was surveying my illustrious career as a church hopper that I did for many years. Uh, I went to many, many churches, and basically what I would do, and this is not to you know, convict and sentence anyone that's you know, here for the first time, but hope you come back. Um, the, uh, I used to go in, and I'd have a checklist in my mind. Here are the things that I am going to not come back for, or that sermon stunk, or the music sucks, or whatever. I had my list, and they would last maybe one Sunday, maybe two, and go from church to church, especially after we got married, because I felt like I really need to find a church because that's what a husband does. So we were so confused as to what to do. We had like five churches written on a piece of paper, put it in a hat, prayed over it like the disciples did over lots and everything, and we're like, eh, this is so spiritual, pulled out a name and said, we're going to commit to a church for a year. And when 365 days passed, on the 366th day, we went to another church because we committed to it. We made good on a word, but we were dissatisfied. And the thing, though, I tell you that story because the one thing that I saw throughout all my church hopping experience was that very few churches talked about sin. And many talked about sins in the fact that the preacher would get up and he would give me a list uh, starting maybe the seven deadly sins of here are the things that you shouldn't do to uh, not tick off God or to be more loved, however you want to say it, but don't commit these things, right? And that made sense to me. And so we 
would make our lists, and I had my list growing up. You know, in high school, honestly, my list was don't have sex, don't drink, I'm a good Christian. We all have our own lists, whatever it is that makes us a good Christian. And when we talk about sin, though, the Bible uses several terms to, to describe our brokenness and our fallenness. And there are three terms, actually, I get the Hebrew wrong, so I've got to look at my notes, but one is uh, ava, and ava is a Hebrew word that is translated iniquity. So you probably see iniquity, it's kind of a fun word to use to sound really smart, you know, like you're really a victim of your iniquity right now. And so people are like, ooh, you're really intelligent. But iniquity is one of those words. The other words are pasha, which means transgression. So when it says, you know, in Psalm 51, I've forgiven my transgressions and things of that nature, that's what, it's still sin, this is another name for it. And then katha is the word that is sin. Now, the first one, iniquity, speaks to a very specific thing about this sin problem we have that is internal and affects everything. You can have all the lists you want. That's not going to stop or fix the heart issue that you got, which is the big stone that does bad things. So you need it replaced by Jesus Christ, put a heart of flesh in there, and then you can live like he did. And that's the only way to do it. But until that time, the first, the iniquity concept, the iniquity word, talks about the idea of our brokenness, kind of like an arm being pulled out of socket. So you try to use that arm the best you can, and it's not going to work that well because you are broken, you are fallen, just as much as our world has fallen. We are unable to do the functions that we're supposed to, and so we get sick and those types of things. We're kind of twisted out of shape, if you will. So when you see iniquity, that's oftentimes what the word, the Hebrew word is referring to. The second one is the transgression one, and that speaks to our rebellion. The idea that we flip God the spiritual middle finger and say, I'm doing my own thing. I don't care that you created me. I don't really need you. I can determine what's right and wrong in my world. And we go and we rebel and we sin. And we do bad things thinking that they will give us pleasure when, in fact, the only thing that's going to give us true joy is God. So transgression is the second word. Well, the third word is the one that is most convicting. And the third word, which is sin, and the word actually is katha, it is the concept of missing God's mark or not achieving what you were supposed to. Like Romans 3.23, which is very commonly spoken in churches, which is um, for the ways that, not for the, I'm sorry, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short. We don't reach what he, you know, aspires for us to do. And so we're really good in our culture identifying what we shouldn't do. Like, this is disobedience, this is bad, and if we stay away from those things, I'm good. The problem that we have, and the problem, maybe I'm the only one who has this problem. You all may be super Christians or something, but the problem we have is that we miss the mark. So when we have the opportunity or should be loving, we're not. In other words, are we the most loving that we could be? Are we most peaceful that we can be? Um, I'm good at figuring out when we commit sins. I know exactly what I'm doing when I commit. But what about when we don't do what we're supposed to do? Um, because we can just do nothing and kind of play it safe, if that makes sense. Let me give you an example in our culture. I used to teach this story. 1964, some of you may know the story of Kitty Genovese. Kitty Genovese, uh, if you don't know it, then you're going to learn it. It's a story of a young lady, true story. She basically was coming home one night. And she was coming up to basically where she lived, which is probably some kind of brownstone or apartment complex. And she noticed a man pacing in front of her door. And so she thought, mm, don't really want to. It's late. It's nighttime. 
That seems kind of awkward. So I'm going to go ahead and walk the other way and go to this police call box because he used to have that. Now we have cell phones and you just whatever dial. So she walks towards this police call box and she, I'm sorry, he comes around and kind of intervenes and, and, and attacks her. And he begins to stab her. Okay? So he takes a knife out. He's stabbing her, and she is screaming, and actually know exactly what she's screaming because the residents nearby were listening. She started screaming. They open their windows, they open their doors, and they peek out. And here's what she screamed. So I, I don't know how you can misinterpret this, but this is what it sounded like. Oh, my God, he stabbed me. Please help me. Guy leans out the window. One guy said, hey, leave that girl alone. That's it. I'm being stabbed. Help me. Okay? Well, when that one guy decided to say something, the attacker walks away. A little scared. Apartment lights went on. And then apartment lights went out. As they looked outside, didn't see. And Kitty crawled or somehow got to her door of her apartment. And the attacker, who hadn't really gone that far, realized that no one came out to help her. So he returned and finished the job and killed her right there on her steps. And the question I used to ask the students was like, what happened that made Americans so afraid? And you think about that story and you're like, I know what I would do. Okay? There's a reason why our culture had to create good Samaritan laws. It's because people don't do anything and they are now held accountable for that. But because of sin in our world, because of iniquity and transgression, because of sin in our world, there's a lot of injustices around everywhere, a lot of oppression, a lot of brokenness. And many of us, and I include myself, and dare I say maybe most of us, don't do anything about it because we think, quote, that's not my problem. It's not my problem. I want to get involved. And... We have an entire, typically, when, when an opportunity comes up, when we can actually stand up for what is right, when we can speak for what is right, when we can fight and defend those who are vulnerable, typically we've got an imaginary legal defense team coming to our heads to give a case with exhibits as to why we can't or will not do what we know we should do. And we have all kinds of reasons why that is. In Philippians chapter 2, um, well, the letter to the Philippians, and that's really what the New Testament is. It's a bunch of letters in, in, in large part, minus the Gospels. And so Paul is writing this letter from prison. And the interesting thing about this letter, he talks about giving of himself and pouring himself out. And he uses a phrase, I'm going to pour myself out as a drink offering, or even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering for others, I will rejoice. And I take that image and take that concept and think about my own life and go, man, okay, am I, what am I poured out for people? I'll pour it out for my kids, I guess. I make some sacrifices for them. But for most of us, if we really look at the grace in our lives, we got pretty full cups, really full cups, if we want to see it that way. And I think for most of us, I was trying to think of an image that best described what is typical, including myself. I think most of us are not the people getting poured out or so filled that we're overflowing and pouring out to other people's lives and just blessing them and, and kind of addressing their brokenness and ministering to them. I think most of us are sippy cups. Jesus' sippy cups. 
Now, I don't know if you know about sippy cups. If you've got kids, you've seen sippy cups. They're both the most wonderful and terrible thing in the world, okay? And sippy cups are the things you can pack full. You put a cap on the top of it, and nothing will come out of it. You can huck it across the room, hypothetically, and nothing will come out of it. It takes force to get that stuff out of the cup. You can hold it upside down. It's not coming out. And I think most of us are not those cups being overflowed to people. We are the sippy cups being held upside down so full, but we don't want to let it out. And I say that to my disgrace and my shame because I've been blessed with a lot. And in this passage of Scripture, these 10, 12 verses that we're going to read in a second, you're going to see Moses, who is in many ways a picture of Jesus, who is God, who is a deliverer of those who are vulnerable and those who are broken and those in many ways who rebelled and don't deserve love. Those that, although God created in many ways, they don't know him and he doesn't know them. But the fact is Moses does three different times speak out when it's not going to be a benefit to him at all. In fact, it's going to hurt him. And he does it because it's right and he does it because he's there. In the moment. So let's read Exodus chapter 2 and see where we're going with Moses. We ended where Moses is basically uh, put in the basket, goes down the Nile, the daughter of Pharaoh finds him, his sister steps up, says, Hey, don't you need a nursemaid? He goes to spend three to four years with his own mother, who now gets paid to take care of her son, and then she brings him back after that time to give adopted as a son of Pharaoh, a daughter or son of his daughter. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says this. It kind of fast forwards a little bit. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their flock, water the father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up, and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have he left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, according to Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, and Stephen's sermon is the sermon of a young guy who basically is a, a, a leader, a young leader, young deacon in the early church. He gives one sermon. It's a fantastic sermon, then he gets killed. Okay? So Acts chapter 7 is this beautiful sermon where he goes through the whole history of Judaism and ends with Jesus basically telling them, oh, you guys killed him, and they decided to kill Stephen for it. So... In that story, though, he tells a lot about this scenario with Moses. And one of the things he says is that it's been about 36 years 
since Moses has been given to the daughter of Pharaoh. So he's about 40 years old. So he has, for 40 years, lived in a culture where he looks like an Egyptian, talks like an Egyptian, and walks like an Egyptian, not that, but he, in every way, is Egyptian. And so you are left to wonder, as it starts, whose team is this guy on, really? Has he gone so far into the culture that he has forgotten his roots? He's forgotten where he came from. And it's very clear in verse 11 that he hasn't. He says it twice, that he went one day to look at his people and see his people. And the one day thing really stuck out to me because there were many days in that 40 years where he could have went out and looked. Many, many days. In fact, you would pretty much have to close your eyes to not see the oppression going on. Because this is a kingdom that was built, the architecture is created in many ways, on the burdens and the backs of his own people. So for whatever reason, and I think in large part this is what's so convicting for me, is that his decision to see what he wanted to see was just that, a decision. One day he decided to open his eyes and look. And my prayer, honestly, is that today is your guys' one day, and my one day, where you open your eyes and you look. Because there's a lot of oppression in this little community here and outside. A ton that is going across your path. You don't even have to go anywhere. It's there. But he looks at their burdens and something in him wakes up. I don't know what it is exactly. Perhaps it's the brutality. Maybe it's gotten a lot worse over time. But he wakes up and the the Levite in him, the angry, impulsive guy in him, takes over. And for whatever reason, he decides to act. And I was thinking about this. I think that our culture, um, and specifically the reality TV aspect of our culture, has kind of uh, screwed us up a little bit. Here's what I mean. We all hear about a lot of stuff going on. And it's a lot of injustices and bads going on. I was telling the story of uh, a couple people in Nevada recently, there's a new law that was written about, I think, several months or maybe a year ago, where it says you can take children and you can take them to an emergency room in a hospital and not be legally held accountable if you are, you know, giving them up. Kind of like putting a baby on the doorstep of a church, okay? The problem is they never really talked about ages in there. And so there's a dad with nine kids. Youngest is one. His wife died in that birth. He took all nine kids, 17 to age one, dropped them off and walked away. And I told my wife, although half maybe facetiously, but maybe half seriously, so you were lucky that's not like Stevens. Because my heart was broken. It was just broken. And I, I don't know how I fit nine people in my house, but I would find a stinking way. And I'd take that dad with us too. Say, you ain't leaving your kids. But now they're going to be parsed out to it. It's so easy to go, oh, that's really bad. So what's for dinner? I mean, that's how our life works. You watch the news. The news is like, oh, this terrible murder happened. Next in sports. I mean, it's just like, whoa, wait a second. We don't care about anything. It's like you're not even asked to care. And reality TV is really interesting like that because what happens with reality TV is that we watch these people, these broken people that are just as broken as us, but they seem really messed up 
like way more than us, but they're just more messed up than you because you're not in front of a camera 24 hours a day and you're being taped. But you watch these people and you're like, man, that guy is screwy. I mean, I used to be a huge Survivor fan. I filled out the application twice. Okay? I honestly did. And I filled out the Amazing Race application once because I wanted to do it with my sisters. There was a family one. And it was four people. So I was going to be the pagan and the three pagans and the preacher because they always have like a little title down there, you know. But I never, I, have a, I still want to go on Amazing Race. I don't want to go with my wife because she's a terrible navigator. I need a navigator. And I need, I need someone that I can argue with. You know, and not and still be married to later, because that's what happens. All the marriages, like, blow up. So I'm a huge reality TV fan. I love it, okay? But you watch these shows like Big Brother or whatever it is, and you're watching these broken people. But the funny thing is, or the terrible is that when suddenly someone reveals their brokenness or maybe just their irritants, whatever, you vote them out. They're done with that. Or in our case, we change the channel. But some of, us, some of them even let us participate. I want that guy out of there. Text out, you know, whatever. But the fact is that when brokenness kind of comes in our world, we treat it just like reality TV, and they're like, yeah, you're out. You're off the island, buddy. I don't want to talk with you because that's just a little too dirty and messy and irritating for me. And that's honestly how we live a lot of our lives. These things come across our path, and we're just like, boop, boop, I don't see it. You don't see this? I don't see anything. And we pretend it's not there. But Moses doesn't. And I think, on a side note, this is a really cool picture. Because Moses is writing this. And Moses writes about himself here. Now, if you were going to write a memoir about yourself, I know if I was, it would be really cool. Okay? Very colorful. I'd look like the hero every time. I'd say the perfect words. You know, all that stuff. Moses records his own brokenness and a story that makes him both look good and bad okay which for me is kind of the beauty of scripture because if someone's going to lie about something especially like the gospel writers were like you know you got peter right you know just bad stuff that they're doing like it's believable because it's so raw and real and i love that but moses in this case decides to act, and he looks this way, he looks that way, and he kills this guy. A little bit of premeditation. And before we, for a moment, because honestly, when I first read this, I'm like, oh, yeah, two wrongs don't make a right. You know, and like, you're just going off on how terrible, I can't believe the terrible murderer, this impulsive Levite in need of anger management, he's got issues. But the fact is, if you guys, if we thought about, you know, a World War II scenario where you have a Nazi guard killing another Nazi guard for pounding on some Jewish people sent him the gas chamber, you'd be like, yeah, heck yeah. And that's the, the picture you have to get where this guy is being beaten to the point of death. The whole policy of slavery had two reasons. One, to build the culture, but to kill him off because there were too many of them. And so they were brutal. And so Moses doesn't have to do anything. In fact, he's a prince of Egypt. He has got a ton to lose. A ton to lose. He could kill anybody, really. I mean, think about it. He's, got, he's a son of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is worship as God. No problem, son. But his dad knows who he really is. And he knows who he really is. And he's got a ton to sacrifice. And he does, despite that. Because I think for us... We generally, and as we read this, maybe this is, how, this is where I go, 
is that we don't often do what is right because of how much it could cost us. And as my, our minds always go to the worst case scenario. Well, this is going to happen. I'm going to lose this. I'm going to lose this. So that is the reason why my defense team tells me that I probably should not act in this moment. And Moses doesn't because it's right. And he's there. But who wants to obey and do the right thing when it's so much easier and comfortable to do the wrong thing? I mean, really. He's going to sacrifice his comfort, his wealth, his prestige, everything. So he kills the guy, buries him in the sand. And then it says, and the next day, Moses went out. And he's suddenly more aware of things. Because, honestly, once you like start seeing it, it's hard to avoid it now. And he still could, though. And so he starts to look around, maybe a little more intentionally now, looking around at what's going on. And he sees two of his brothers now. This is a little bit different. You don't got some outsider beating up on the, you know, good believer in Jesus. And so now you got two believers in Jesus beating up on each other. And Moses, again, could ignore it. He could pretend like he doesn't see it. He could pretend like he doesn't hear anything. Or he could just remain silent and see what happens. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And the beauty of it is that instead of like coming out and saying, let me condemn you because you are doing these terrible things, he does something very interesting. He just asks a question. And sometimes being asked questions is the most gentlest and most terrible thing that can happen to you. And that's exactly, strangely, what God did when he came into the garden and men had fallen. He asked several questions. First he says, Adam, where are you? Like he didn't know. Adam, where, where are you? And Adam goes out, well, I'm hiding because I don't got any clothes on, you know, that kind of thing. And he says, who told you you were naked? Don't say anything. Just ask questions. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? What have you done? And I remember my mom, when I used to get in trouble, which I never did, but I got in trouble, and she would never like, I should say never, but generally she wouldn't like make statements of, well, here's where you screwed up. Shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done this. I'm really good as a parent doing that, okay? Instead, she would ask questions. So what did you do? Nothing. Right? I'd ask my son that. What did you do? I, did you take that? No. <laughs> Waiting for a reaction, you know? And my mom, her famous one was always, uh, you know, when I want to know what to do, and she's like, well, just do what you think is right. That doesn't help. Because what I wanted was not what was right, right? That's what Jesus did. He always asked all kinds of questions. But the funny thing is, he never asked questions because the answer was unclear. The answer was always obvious. It was always obvious. And so asking questions is very effective. And Moses just says, here, look, what are you doing? Why are you beating up your brother? And I think most of us, fail to do anything and remain silent because we are very afraid to ask the question. In fact, we expect the reaction that Moses did where he basically gets becomes the headless prophet and gets his head just chomped off. 
trying to do good, trying to deliver. I'm just going to ask you a question here. You know, we'll always dress it up. I'm just going to ask one thing. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm not trying to disrupt anything. Just wondering, right? But we hopefully get there. But we don't ask questions. Typically, we think people are going to beat us up. And we really think that they're going to say, who are you to ask me that? I know what you've done. Who are you to inquire about my marriage? Your marriage is jacked up. Why don't you get your yard taken care of and start mowing mine later, okay? Who are you to ask me? Or sometimes we just don't say anything because we don't really know what to ask or say. And the question is, all you have to do is ask some simple questions like, how is your marriage? How are your kids? How's your relationship with God? Oh, well, you don't, you don't ask that. You don't, you don't talk about that. Okay? Because someone asked how your relationship with God is. It's still okay to get a question to ask. Or I think some of the reasons we use is uh, we really don't think that we have the authority or the pull or the push, whatever. So we sit there and we see something going on. We see maybe two people in our own vicinity, believers. People who love Jesus, that's what we're talking about, right? You see believers, and you know that something's wrong. You know they're experiencing some brokenness. You realize that, you know, gosh, you, uh, do you have some kind of problem, some kind of addiction or whatever? But you would never ask that because, well, they're not going to listen to you. So you kind of just wait like, someone should say something. Someone should say something here. When God's screaming at you to say something because it's right in front of you. Then perhaps no one else sees it. But we don't. It's not my business. Another one. Well, if God put it in front of you, maybe it is your business. Maybe you need to make more people's business your business. Not out of pride. Out of love. There's a reason why the Bible says, encourage one another. Stir one another. Rebuke one another. But I think the biggest one maybe is that, you know, well, they're not going to like me anymore. If I say something, they're not going to like me. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. That doesn't make any less right. It just makes your relationship really fake. And I think that, again, we're really good at talking about the, you know, when we see someone screwing up and committing a sin, oh, don't do that. But we talk about actually loving in a way that you're supposed to love and not just not hating that makes sense we're not so good so instead of being viewed as deliverer he gets his head bit off and they say well we know you killed that guy and so he flees and what happens is pharaoh who is the only dad he knows is trying to kill him now so his whole world his what he grew up in hates his guts he's a criminal the people who was his original family now have abandoned him because he stood up for them strangely Ironically, and so he goes from a prince in many ways to being a pauper, impoverished. And the fact remains that most of us will not do what Moses did because it will result in this. Not could, it probably will. And we'd rather keep the peace, believing that keeping the peace is avoiding as much conflict as we can. There are times for conflict. There are times for it. And there are times for peace. 
But when you decide to stand up, you have to recognize that it is much easier to be popular than it is to be right. Much more comfortable, too. And so Moses goes off to Midian. And I think, I was thinking as he was going to Midian, it's interesting. He goes to Midian. He ends up spending another 40 years in Midian eventually. Training, he, he was trained to be a general and a leader and all these things, but he didn't know how to shepherd people, so they, God makes him a shepherd. And it's interesting, we stand up for truth and you actually lose everything that you thought was good and comfortable, which, sure, comfortable and wonderful. And we go, I shouldn't have said anything. I shouldn't have done that. I, that was wrong. And I'm determining that because I lost everything that I really liked. But I think sometimes that's the only way God can get your tail into Midian where you're supposed to be. It's the only way. And so I think the best way to approach life maybe is just to do right all the time. And if God takes something away, maybe you didn't need it. Maybe. But he goes into Midian. Midian is an interesting place. It's the, most, it's the wonderful, terrible people that deal with Israel. Right now, they're pretty friendly with the Israelites up to the Exodus. After the Exodus, they're still generally friendly, but then they start to lead Israel into sin. Uh, they start to feel threatened by them. Um, they're actually the descendants of Abraham. Abraham had a concubine named Keturah, and he had several sons with her. But right before he died, he basically took all his concubines and all his sons. He gave them presents, and he said, see you later. Move away from my son Isaac. And they did. And so Keturah and her family went and settled in Midian. And Midian later becomes, if you've heard the story of Balaam, the prophet that's hired by Midian, basically, to come and curse Israel and results in him, like, being blessing upon them. Um, that's Midian. So Midian's a very interesting place, but at this point it's, fairly, it's seemingly fairly pagan. They're not worshiping the God of Israel. And he goes into this situation that is completely outside everything he knows. He is a stranger in a strange land as much as can be strange. He has nothing. He's penniless, homeless, hungry, knows no one. He has lost everything sacrificed everything, and what, whatever little stuff he has, if you ever watch Prince of Egypt, he has like, you know, a necklace, that's like it. Whatever he has, he's probably very attached to it, that's it. Then he comes to a well, and he sits there, because there's not many places, watering holes, and generally communities are surrounded on these wells, and seven girls come up who are complete strangers to him. And even though Moses has nothing he has nothing to gain, and he has very little to lose. He still stands up for what is right. He still does. I don't know how many times you and I, and this is me too, decide not to do what's right because we're so afraid we're going to lose the very little thing we have. I don't got much. What am I going to do? And I think we probably, at the very least, might excuse Moses in this situation, the third one here, of not doing anything because, well, he doesn't know these people. I don't know how many of y'all saw the Dateline uh, many moons ago. I was reminded by it when um, Brent, who was a speaker at our men's retreat, referenced it. I remembered watching the show. And that is, they put a woman and a guy, they were actors, in the middle of a park. And they put him in conflict. So the guy was just screaming at this girl. Okay? And they taped to see who would help. And to our shame, guy after guy. I mean, big like buff guys. 
like walking up, like the guys that can't even put their arms together, kind of buff guys, have teeny little legs, you know, they're like, you know, and this guy is not that big. He's screaming at this girl, and he walks the other way. They don't even, like, keep walking on the same path. They make a U-turn. A couple ladies said something. Maybe one guy might have said something. They did it with kids, too. It's amazing how easy it is to ignore, especially when our defense team says, you don't know them. You don't know them. Don't get involved. And I wonder how many people are right now in our midst, in our church, in our family, in our neighborhoods, at our jobs, where it is screaming at you to do something, to take a stand, to speak something into the brokenness and the oppression that you see, and you are pretending you don't see it. Moses could have very easily said, no way. These shepherds come up, they start beating up on these girls, or at least getting, you know, giving them trouble. And he's got to be pretty studly, because he stands up to them, first of all. You know how many there are, there's got to be a couple. But he stands up to them, knowing that he could get the snot beat out of them. He really could. But he stands up, he defends them, he scares them off, beats them up, whatever, does his jujitsu, gets rid of them. And the girls there, he not only that, he completes their work for seven daughters. Does all their work. That's pretty studly. He goes well beyond anything, knowing that he'll gain him nothing. He never once says, hey, uh, maybe I could have a loaf of bread. <laughs> maybe, you know, you could take me home with you and we could hang out with your pagan dad. You know, what do you say? Nothing. They leave. They just leave, and they go home, and the dad's like, what are you doing here so soon? It's like, well, Egyptian, like, seven times more powerful than us, man, went and did all our work for us twice as fast. And he's like, where is he? Bring him home. And so he does. And he comes home, and he ends up marrying one of the daughters, Zipporah. And the fact is that Moses stood up for what was right because he was there. He had his own issues. I got my own problems. How many times have you heard that? I'd help, but, I mean, I've got this going on, this going on. I just, I can't. If it's coming across your path, maybe it's right for you to help, regardless of what your issues are. Moses had a few. He'd gone from prince to pauper in less than a day. But you ask yourself, if you believe in Jesus, if you claim to be a Christian, if I claim to be a Christian, those claims and that belief means nothing if you're not living like Jesus. It means nothing. The demons believe in Jesus. People who knock on my door and tell me that Jesus is the brother of Satan believe in Jesus. Lots of people believe in Jesus. All kinds of celebrities now believe in Jesus. But that belief means nothing if you're not living like Jesus. Nothing. So you ask yourself, why did Moses do what he did? Well, Hebrews tells us. It's really interesting. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is the great faith chapter. And it's a wonderful chapter. And it has some interesting things to say about Moses that are curious. Because he sounds like a New Testament guy.
See, Moses chose to live instead of in sin, enjoying the pleasures of his world and the comfort of his world like Jesus. And that didn't mean not committing sins. It meant committing to do what was right and what was most loving and what was going to cost him something. Because anyone can get wealthy if they don't give anything away. Anyone can be at peace if you don't have conflict. That's not difficult. But it's certainly not godly. And Hebrews 11 says this, verse 24, speaking about why Moses did what he did. He says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, same word used in Exodus chapter 2, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, which brought comfort and all kinds of perks. Choosing rather, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He did it because he was choosing Jesus rather than choosing sin. And in this case, not sins that he committed, but sins that were committed because of what he could have not done. And like Jesus, he decided to get dirty with the sons of God rather than stay comfortable with his own peeps. He decided in many ways, like Jesus, to speak the truth when the truth was not going to do anything but cause him headache. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus was not a friend to anybody. No one, I mean, he had 12 guys that followed him, but the church hated him. The Jews, the Pharisees, couldn't stand him. They wanted to kill him. The Romans weren't sure what to do with him. The people he came to save denied him, all because he spoke the truth. His own family abandoned him. And like Jesus, Moses defends the helpless, even though, in many ways, he doesn't know them in the sense of having a relationship with them. Jesus came and defended us and came and fought against sin and fought against death when we didn't have relationship. When we were walking the other way, he pursued us. And Moses, in a very real way, pictures this I don't know you, but I'm going to do what's right and I'm going to help you. Then I'm going to bless you, not just defend and then stop. I'm going to bless you. In the conclusion of this, if you look at the last few verses in Exodus 2, verse 23, it kind of takes a little segue from Moses' story and begins to direct our eyes towards God, although the whole story is about God. In Exodus 2, it says this, verse 23, a little paragraph here. After he's in Midian, and he names his son a sojourner in a foreign land, knowing that he is not in his home. Wasn't in his home in Egypt, he's not in his home in Midian. And verse 23 says this, During those many days when he was in Midian, and he's in Midian for about 40 years, you'll find out, because get to chapter 3 and he's about 80. During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And their cry 
for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And he saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So the king dies, the king that had been his dad and been wanting to kill him. The oppression seems to get worse, not better. So bad that the Israelites start to groan in a way they have not grown before. And they cry out to God and pray, maybe for the first time in 400 years. And God hears them. And it says that he remembers his covenant. And for a second you kind of go, so what's God, God been doing for 400 years? Did he go like, oh, uh, wasn't paying attention. What's going on now? Oh, okay. Forgot about my promises. No. Genesis 15, he said this many moons ago. What was going to happen? In Genesis 15, he said very clearly, for 400 years, Abraham, your people are going to be in oppression. And then he says this in verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they'll come out with great possession. God has been in control the whole time. And the 400 years is up. And he says, I remembered what my promise was, and I'm going to fulfill it. Very similar to a lot of the promises he's made to us. Like, I started to work in you, and I'm going to see it to completion. I'm going to provide for you. Don't worry about tomorrow. And he remembers his covenant. And like Moses, it says that God saw and he knew. And it's not God seeing the sense of, oh, there it is, making eye contact. It's God seen to the point where he has moved to kindness and to sympathy. And it's knowing, not like knowledge, but knowing in the sense of sharing an experience with someone else and understanding their oppression. And just as Moses kind of foreshadows what's going to happen with Jesus it foreshadows or pushes forward this that God's going to do something pretty powerful, which is what the rest of the Exodus is about. See, all of us are surrounded by oppression. We are surrounded by people oppressed, hurting, broken, addicted, needing, and we decide in very real way whether we want to look at all. And even if for those who see it, very few of us actually act upon it. We're like, yeah, I see that. Maybe throw a prayer up for it. We don't actually do it because I might have to get dirty with that person. I might have to like, like give that person a hug or something. And all of us, I think, see our brothers. For those who are believers, we see our brothers that are struggling sometimes. You know marriages that are broken. You know guys that are struggling with sin who do love Jesus. And yet, very few of us actually get in each other's faces and challenge one another. Very few of us are willing to say, That's, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? The Bible is very clear. We're supposed to encourage one another. We're supposed to stir one another on. We're supposed to rebuke one another occasionally. Jesus did it with Peter. It's like, well, Peter, who do people say I am? Oh, you are God most high. Five verses later, he's like, you're Satan, Peter. You're blessed because you call me this. Now you're Satan because you don't want me to go down the cross. There's times we need rebuke. There are times when we've got to say hard words to one another. And all of us 
see it if we want to, the vulnerable and weak people around us. But a lot of us are unwilling to step out and help because we have nothing left to give them, we think, because we've lost so much. And I think that our community groups and our road groups, we can justify all the things we want of why we don't want to be involved in that. But in many real ways, like having relationships here is near impossible. And those are the places where you actually have to think about someone else and look at someone else's vulnerabilities and get to know them because that's what it takes. It takes looking and knowing and seeking out. And let's be honest, it's not a matter of seeing and knowing. But it's having a concern for people that are actually in your family, having a concern maybe for people in your church, having a concern for your neighbor who you've never talked to in your life because, well, you don't even have a good reason, but your defense team will give you one. In Philippians 2, where Paul had written from prison, he, he writes something that's very interesting because we, we get to this place where we're like, man, I suck. I'm not loving at all. Okay? Well, I think there's some really hard questions you need to ask yourself. In Philippians 2, Paul writes this, verses uh, 3 and a few following. He says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, right now, your defense team is going to your mind to have a new interpretation for what that verse probably means. And I'll tell you, it's pretty plain and simple. So we'll read again just in case there's some confusion because I know how English can be difficult to understand sometimes. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, which you have to do, but also to the interests of others. How am I going to do this? Well, if you're a Christian, you have something. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So what am I supposed to do? Gosh, how am I supposed to actually be a Christian? Well, you be like Jesus. How do you do that? Well, he did this. He made himself nothing, in verse 7, taking the form of a servant. But I want to be served. Form of a servant. There are people around your world, and that's not necessarily in this church, it's in your job, Wherever you're at, your family, your friends, your co-workers, there are people that are lonely, there are people that are broken and addicted, there are people with marriages that are messed up, there are people with all kinds of sin, iniquity, and transgression in their lives that have come across your path, not mine. Your individual path. God has placed you there, and the question is, what are you going to do about it or not do? Are you going to remain silent? Because that's outside. But even in the body here, the strange thing is, there's a lot of brokenness in here. And I hear about it. Why? Because I'm the pastor. And I love it. I don't love the brokenness, but I'm compelled to show love. I'm compelled to give answers, even when I don't got them. You think I have, like, the pastor's manual somewhere? Like, oh, let me tell you how to fix that problem. No. No, it's not it. There's people who sit before me and tell me their issues, and I think in the moment, I don't know what the beep I'm going to tell this guy. 
But I'm there. I'm listening. I'm telling them, look, I'm the mailman. I just need to introduce you to Jesus. That's the best I can do. And I walk with them, and I do my best. And it's especially people in the body here. And if you're a Christian, we take communion every Sunday here to remind ourselves of our brokenness, but also maybe to remind ourselves of the brokenness of others. Because the Bible calls us the body of Christ, and it says that everybody is a different part. I don't know if you're the foot, the hand, whatever, okay? You're something. Pick your part, okay? So you're a part, right? Well, when your ear is bleeding or your knee is scuffed up or your toe is out of alignment, it hurts. And you can't ignore it. You can't. You can limp around a little bit, but I'll tell you right now, the body is never not limping. Different things get hurt different times. And I liken it kind of like the itch you can't find. You know the itch you can't find? You're like, I know I'm, i got an itch. And you kind of start here, and you're going around, and then you're like, it's like the bottom of your foot. Like, how did that ever happen? I don't know. And you have that itch, but you looked for it, and you found it. There are people that are struggling. There are single people in here. There are divorced people in here. There are addicted people in here that have come across your path, and the question is, what are you going to do? Because if you are a believer, and I say if, because there's lots of people who believe, you will live like Jesus. Even if you don't have the answers, you will see the oppression and you will do something. Say something. By the grace of God, by the power of Christ, not by your own intelligence or giftedness, but because Christ stood up for you. It's the only reason. And that's what we celebrate here. So I'm going to pray for us that we understand that Jesus delivered you simply so you could help deliver others. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled before your greatness, before your might, before your care and concern for our troubles and our woes and our oppression. Father, we confess that we see oppression around us and we ignore it because it makes us uncomfortable, because it makes us scared, because it makes us intimidated. Lord, I pray for boldness by Your Spirit. I pray that the love of Christ will be rebirthed and refreshed in our souls, that we will see, first and foremost, our own deliverance from our own oppression. We will see the light that is there, regardless of what people say. We will not listen to the accuser. We will not listen to his lies but we will listen to the truth of Jesus Christ and we will accept and embrace our deliverance that we might deliver others. Help us, God, because our faith is weak. Help us to be more loving because we love ourselves more than you. Help us to love you that we might love others. In your son's precious blood we pray. Amen.